appointed president of the White House Historical Association in May 2014. Stuart McLaren's career spans the nonprofit, education, and public policy fields. Over the past 30 years, he's held senior positions with George Washington's Mount Vernon, the Ronald Reagan Foundation, the Motion Picture Association, Georgetown University, the American Red Cross, and posts with the federal government. And I would say, on a personal note, uh, I had the great pleasure of working alongside Stuart at Mount Vernon in the planning of the George Washington Presidential Library. And there are perhaps uh, few people who I have enjoyed learning from and to have shown such great examples of collaborative leadership and innovation. He's a remarkable guy, and we're thrilled to have him today. If you would please join me in welcoming Stuart McLaren. Thank you, Jamie, very much. It's really wonderful for me to be with all of you here today in Richmond. Some of you may remember we had this plan for early December when you had the actual carving on loan from us in the National Park Service of the double Scottish rose that was carved by the Scottish stonemasons, um, replicating one of the carvings on the White House itself that I'll talk more about today. But our schedule got scuttled in December because of the unfortunate passing of President George H.W. Bush, which we had to be involved with, and so we apologize for having to postpone. But thank you for your patience with us and being with us here today. This is a wonderful organization and a real privilege for us to partner and to collaborate. And you, in my view, are very fortunate to have the leadership of Jamie and his vision and his eagerness to grow and expand the reach, influence, and impact of this organization and the understanding of the rich history of Virginia, not just to Virginians, but to people across the country. To begin today, I want to take just a few minutes and set some context for the book that I'm going to talk about. And that context will be, what is the White House Historical Association? Who are we? Why do we exist? And what do we do? We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. Our role is the same regardless who the President or First Lady of the United States may be. And we were founded in 1961 by First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy. And remember, she was only 32 years old when she became First Lady of the United States. But at that young age, she had the foresight and the vision, the wisdom, to know that what she and President Kennedy needed then, presidents and First Ladies would need throughout the rest of time, and that would be to have a private partner, someone to come alongside them and provide non-taxpayer resources to keep the White House at the museum standard that we now know it today. Few people realize that before President Kennedy and the establishment of the White House by Congress as a museum, few people realized that a new president would come into office and they could get rid of anything they wanted to in the White House. And that's how they acquired new things and more fashionable things in their view by selling the old. So for example, wonderful uh, Virginia president, James Monroe, comes into the White House in 1817. He's been our minister to France. He brings with him a suite, 52-piece suite of Belanger furniture from the French cabinet maker. And uh, that stays in the White House until the 1850s. James Buchanan comes along and doesn't like this tired French fancy furniture. Out it goes, all 52 pieces. And today we only have 10 of those original pieces that have been able to be reclaimed back into the White House collection. 
So our role is to help identify original pieces of the White House collection, fund resources to bring them back into the collection, maintain them. We have just done a refurbishment of that Belanger suite that will be familiar to you in your mind's eye. You can picture it in the blue room, the beautiful heavily gilded uh, chairs and sofa uh, with the blue silk and the gold emblems on the blue silk. So those have just recently been refurbished in the blue room. So for all of these 58 years, we've been working with the White House, First Lady principally, to keep the White House at that museum standard, but also important to Mrs. Kennedy, and this kicks off what I'm going to talk about today, is the importance of teaching the history of the White House and the stories of American history that can be told through that historic portal. All that's happened on that historic stage that we know as the White House. And she began this mission by publishing, having us publish in partnership with the National Geographic at that time, the very first White House guidebook. She had been a visitor to the White House as a young girl with her mom and was concerned that you go through, uh, you don't have a guide and you don't have a guidebook and you, unless you know what you're seeing, you don't know what you're seeing. So in 1962, we published the very first guidebook and we've continued to publish that book, currently in its 24th edition and I brought with me today um, the current issue of that, the 24th edition, but also this is Mrs. Kennedy's personal copy of the uh, very first guidebook. Can see the pages and uh, it has her gold initials here on the front and we were fortunate to obtain this after her passing but this has been the ongoing work of the association and our education mission to publish books as one part we also have lectures conferences teacher institutes and a variety of programs but our books have been a mainstay over these years to convey the very rich content and the wonderful stories of white house history and that's where we come to today, and it's one of those stories and one of those books that I'm going to tell you about today. And that book is uh, this wonderful book on a White House of Stone. This was published two years ago with the wonderful historian William Seal. Uh, I wrote the foreword in, in, the, in the beginning, which you, you'll see if you obtain a copy. Bill Seal is an American treasure. He has written about the White House and its history going back decades, and he's a wonderful man. He's unable to be with us today. He's ill and in Texas, but we wish him our very best. And if you ever have the opportunity to read something that William Seal wrote, you'll be blessed by it and better informed by the experience. This book tells the wonderful story going back to 1792 when Congress passed a law that required the establishment of a federal presence in Washington, what became Washington, D.C., the federal city, a 10-square-mile plot of land at Virginia and Maryland on the Potomac River. And Washington, George Washington, knew that to establish this in such short order, he really needed to get something built and something iconic that would be respected here in America, but also in Europe. And the materials of that, what to use, uh, not to have a wooden or a brick building as would be typical at the time in early America, but he knew that stone houses were what was respected in the European capital, and that's what he insisted that the White House be built of, and that it have intricacies and carvings and be very impressive to those who saw it, who happened to be of our country, or those who happened to be visiting from abroad. You do know this fellow and very familiar with him, 
And uh, of course, there were, uh, we had had our capital in Philadelphia and New York, and both of those cities were vying to have a new president's house and building a new president's house. Of course, we think that Washington probably had some personal interest in having it closer to his home at Mount Vernon. But Washington was selected, uh, what became Washington, D.C. was selected. And George Washington, in addition to affirming the site that L'Enfant had initially determined to be the site of the White House, Washington was charged with selecting the architect for the White House. And there was a competition of sorts to select this architect, although I think uh, George Washington had his thumb on the scale a little bit because he knew who he wanted. And he had been exposed to the young Irish architect, James Hoban, from his work in Charleston when George Washington had made his southern tour. So Hoban a compete, submitted a, a, a bid or a, a drawing to compete for the opportunity to be the architect of this executive mansion, the president's house, where the new president of the United States would reside in Washington. So this is an image of a young James Hoban who was living in America at the time, and this is the rendering that he submitted to be his proposal for the new executive mansion. And you'll notice it's very similar to something that he was familiar with, and that's Leinster House in Dublin. And I've been to this wonderful place, and they actually, when you walk up on it, it does strike you as having the image and the feel of the White House. It doesn't have the extended portico that we recognize, and it's one floor lower to the uh, eye from the north view of our White House. But you can see there some similarity and familiarity of a building that he knew and was familiar with. Um, just across the street and about two blocks away from a Leinster House, which is now the seat of the Irish Parliament, by the way, is an old building called the New, it was the Newcomen Bank when James Hoban would have known it. And you walk into the Newcomen Bank today, and it's the, actually some offices for the city of Dublin. And you find in the Newcomen Bank these oval rooms. And you immediately think, and they're right about the size of the oval rooms in the White House. Not the Oval Office, that's a 20th century creation. But as you know, stacked in the center of what we know as the White House today, on the ground floor is the diplomatic reception room, an oval. Above that, the blue room, an oval. And above that, the yellow room and the residence, also an oval. So you walk into this Newcomen Bank building in Dublin and you think, wow, that's, that's the idea for these oval spaces. And he took that to George Washington. And he said, I've got this idea, and here's what we can do with an oval space in the president's house. And that's how we believe that concept evolved as well. So 1792, the White House, is the, the president's mansion begins to be built. And they're using what we now know as Lafayette Park, just north of the White House, as the grounds upon which the workers convene. They live there. They have small little huts or houses or cottages that have been built for them. They have a carpenter shed that would have been right about where the statue of Andrew Jackson is today. There would have been carpenters, brick masons, stone cutters, laborers, a whole village of buzz and activity uh, working for about eight years to construct the outside of the house as well as not quite finished, but by the time it was occupied by John and Abigail Adams in November of 1800, not quite finished, but pretty far along, enough for them to inhabit it. 
Well, this you will recognize as a view from the sky of Washington, D.C., and a little uh, red dot uh, is Aquia, Virginia, about 40 miles south of Washington. When you drive down Washington to Richmond on 95 today, you'll pass the Aquia exit. And if you take that exit today, you can still go to a park, and I think we have some friends of ours from Stafford County that are here today that live in close proximity to the park. And you can walk through the park and actually see this site where the stone was quarried or harvested to take and build the White House. But you'll notice it's about 40 miles down the Potomac River from Washington. This site had been used, stone from this site had been used in small quantities for churches in the area. George Washington had used a small quantity at Mount Vernon. It was a sandstone type of material. In fact, I have a, a sample of it uh, here today that I'll have out at the book table if you'd like to touch it and feel it. Uh, rather porous, uh, easy to carve. And the challenge was, how do you, who does this? Who does this work in a young country that is not filled with artisans and craftsmen? Well, the best hard stone cutters of marble in the world, those were the Italians. But the best soft stone cutters of very similar stone to this were the Scots. And so an effort was made to reach out to Scotland and bring Scottish stonemasons to Washington to carve this stone that came from Virginia. And I'll get to that a little bit more later in my talk. So when you go down to Aquia, or you go up to Aquia, as you would do from here, and it's a wonderful Sunday afternoon or Saturday morning trip to wander through these stone carvings and outcroppings, which you can still see like this. You can see where they drove down the iron poles to separate the block or put a green reed down and poured water through it to force the expansion and the crack that they would then drive it with wooden wedges and break it apart. Uh, there's me down there on a <laughs> recent visit. Uh, you can see uh, very clearly, this is not just a natural, this is, you can see blocks that were uh, broken and set aside and not used. Some of them actually have the marks of the stone cutters or the, the uh, workers who uh, took them out of the ground. And so you can see examples here in these drawings of how they would cut them apart. Some of this was done once it got to Washington. Uh, but it was carved, it was taken out of the ground, put on a, a cart like this and drove and moved down to the shoreline of the Potomac. And fascinating to me is it was placed on these flat rafts and then pulled upstream against the current for 40 miles to get to Washington, D.C. And they did it along the edge as far out of the main current as, as possible. And then it was offloaded uh, right there on the Washington Harbor and then taken stonemasons would sometimes go down and look at it there and see what was the best and see what would they prefer to have moved. And then these blocks were moved over to what we now know as Lafayette Park. Now, the stonemasons viewed themselves as artisans and craftsmen, and they didn't like to be paid by the hour. They wanted to be paid by the work. They were very proud of the work that they did. And they took great pride in selecting the right and the best stone to use for this president's mansion. And so these images and drawings are what we conceptualize to be how they prepared the stone uh, there in Lafayette Park before moving it and placing it uh, on the White House itself. I call it, apologize for using the 21st century words, but uh, the President's Mansion. 
But some of it, you'll see uh, momentarily, they would, they would carve out in the, in the park or in the workyard, but some of it they actually carved in place on the White House. And there's an extraordinary example of that I will show you in just a few moments. But they were very proud of what they carved. Now, when we were writing this book, uh, Bill uh, was undertaking some research and uh, was in, um, had some resources that were in Scotland doing some research and found this image that was labeled a double Scottish rose. We didn't know that term prior to Bill finding this, but now it's one of those things that once you see it, it kind of pops out from you everywhere. And if you look on the garland that's above the north door of the White House, if you look at all of the carvings on every pilaster around every side of the White House, you will see this double Scottish rose. It was very popular in Scotland in the 1780s and then uh, spread throughout Europe and became known as a cabbage rose, this sort of multi-petaled, leafy rose. And we now call it a Scots week. It was something that they left as their mark. In looking at the carvings of these exact same stonemasons back in Edinburgh before they came over and after they returned, and in other stonemasons, there's no other example that we can find where they used this carving of this rose. It is unique to the White House, and we think a very special uh, Scottish nod uh, to the carvings. There's an example of its existence uh, on the uh, White House today. And you can see it, that's on one of the pilasters all the way around. And now that if you, when you go to the White House, that's exactly what you'll see, it'll pop out at you. We recently had, or last spring, we had the opportunity to bring over a current Scottish stonemason, uh, courtesy of the government of Scotland, and he carved a block of stone from a choir into a double Scottish rose. Now he was using much more modern tools than they would have used in the 1790s, but this is, you'll see on the right, the block of stone that was brought here to the museum in December, and it was on view for those of you who had the opportunity to see it then. Last fall, I was privileged to go back to Edinburgh and went to the exact homes on Queen Street in Newtown in Edinburgh and see the buildings that these Scottish stonemasons worked on in Edinburgh. And we were able to place this plaque so that today that house, or those houses are recognized as places where the Scottish stonemasons who were so instrumental to the building of the White House also worked on houses in Edinburgh. Now this is the garland that I was going to uh, tell you that is so special. This is above the north door of the White House. A lot of people call it the front door. But the north door of the White House, it's a span of 14 feet. Two blocks uncarved were put in place above the north door and they were carved in place by the Scottish stonemasons. Really an extraordinary work, an example of their craftsmanship. <laughs> There's great detail in this when you're up close and you're looking at it, if you're standing uh, on, the, on the north portico and looking up, you can actually see, it looks as if the leaves are blowing in the wind and how they made them uh, very delicate. And again, the pilasters around the house with the carvings and the double Scottish rose. The south portico and the north portico were not added until later in the administrations of James Monroe 
and then finished, the North Portico was actually finished under the presidency of Andrew Jackson. But Hoban came back and Benjamin Latrobe also assisted in um, the addition of these um, uh, the porticos as well as the columns and the carving of these pilasters. Some of the Scottish stonemasons were still around. They had gone into private work. A few of them did stay in Washington, D.C., and they were brought back to finish this project as well. By that time, another source of stone had been found, and that was in Maryland, and that was a Seneca stone. And it is a reddish in color. You'll recognize it from the stone that was used to build the Smithsonian Castle, that deep red uh, color. And there are other monuments around Washington that used that stone. So much of the South Portico and some of the North Portico were used, the Seneca stone was used for their completion. But the bulk of the White House, when you look at it from the North today or the South from today from a distance, what you see is stone that came from Virginia to build this great house. Well, the, the White House was finished enough for John and Abigail Adams to move in in 1800. And along came the War of 1812, and you all know the story of the British advancing on the city of Washington to the surprise of uh, President Madison, who thought that he was going to go out and watch them fight and come back and have his dinner that evening. And uh, unfortunately, the British ended up eating his dinner as uh, Dolly fled across the Potomac to McLean and took with her the Gilbert Stewart of George Washington, which to this day remains the only item that was original to the house when the Adams moved in that is back in the house today. Well, the British burned the White House and the stone on the south wall held pretty much intact. The north wall crumbled some on each side, but the center portion was intact and the ends pretty much crumbled altogether inside and fell. The entire interior of the White House was gone and had to be real, rebuilt. It took about three years to do so. There were attempts and suggestions that the White House be moved to a more secure location. Some <coughs> wanted to move it like to Rock Creek Park in Washington where it could be better protected. Others wanted to move it west. Let's build it in what we know as Cincinnati, Ohio, where the American West is opening up and let's have it out there. But Madison wanted to get it re rebuilt, was the word he used. Let's rebuild the White House. It's not going to be different. It's going to be the house that we knew, and we're going to do it right away. So the project was undertaken to rebuild the White House. Much of the stone was recovered and used that had been burned and crumbled into, into the fire. New stone was brought from Aquia. Other stone was brought from Seneca, and the house was rebuilt. It took three years. Uh, this was uh, a drawing of Benjamin Latrobe's of the, uh, what he thought the White House would be look, look like when it was rebuilt. You see some differences from what we know today with the drive, but you see the iconic, one thing I like about this image is in the, uh, here you see the cupola of St. John's Church, which is on 8th Street and 16th Street north of the White House. And Benjamin Latrobe, of course, was the architect of St. John's Church, so he wanted to have a little nod of it in his uh, picture of the White House. Well, the White House was rebuilt, and the Monroes moved in, and he brought with him a treasure trove of French, uh, wonderful uh, French uh, furniture and decorative arts, and I alluded to that story, and that could be a whole different lecture. But things went fine from then until we get around to um, the... Truman administration in the late 1940s. Now, 
Teddy Roosevelt had undertaken a interior reservation, or restoration, excuse me, in 1900, which was pretty extensive for the interior, but uh, it was just more moving staircases and reorganizing rooms a bit. But by the time we get to the 1940s, of course, we've come through World War II, we've come through the Great Depression. There are a lot of things for the President of the United States, President Roosevelt and President Truman, to attend to. So cautions and concerns about the House and its stability were put on the back burner and set aside until a couple of things happened. The President began to be warned that when you go into the East Room and you see those two bohemian glass chandeliers or those bohemian glass chandeliers that were acquired by uh, Teddy Roosevelt and they, you see them shaking and quivering when someone's walking upstairs, that's because they're about to fall and crash. His daughter Margaret played the piano and she had in her room on the residence level upstairs a piano that she would play and one night Margaret's piano leg went through the floor and into the ceiling below. And so Harry Truman realized that this is a house that really needs to be cared for. It was still relying on the wooden beams and the wooden timbers from the reconstruction of 1814 to 1870. No steel, no modern infrastructure whatsoever. So an extraordinary decision was made, and that was to move across the street to the president's guest house, Blair House, that had been acquired by President Roosevelt uh, to be the president's guest house. The Trumans moved there from 48 to 52, and a major reconstruction of the interior of the White House was undertaken. There are several pictures that I'm going to click through of that, and you can see that it was no small undertaking. President Truman went over on one occasion and it was a, they were preparing to remove some of the stone to make an opening for this little tractor to go through and he stopped them. He said, no, we're not going to touch the stone. We're going to leave the exterior of the house completely intact during this entire renovation. And so what they did is they took the tractor apart and took it through the opening and reassembled it inside, and that was fine with Harry Truman. And then they were able to dig deep enough, so after that they were able to take machinery and equipment underneath the stone wall in and out of the White House. But you can see this uh, cavernous. If you were to walk into that north door that I spoke of of the White House, you could look down two floors to the dirt below of the White House. Steel beams infrastructure was put in place of course, everything that was removed from the White House, uh, every element of the structure internally and every element of the, um, of the contents were labeled and carefully stored. There was some attempt, and you may have heard about this, every now and then something would pop up on, somebody, in fact, somebody told me this morning about something they had seen on eBay about this, but uh, they did sell off some bricks and some even nails they had little mystery boxes they would sell that for a certain amount of money you could buy a box of things that had come out of the White House, uh, building materials. And so they raised some money to do that. And so every now and then you'll see something like that pop up uh, somewhere. But that type of thing would no longer uh, be done um, today. So the interior of the White House was built out. You can see uh, on below here, this is the 
uh, what we now know is the blue room of the White House, one of those three oval rooms that I told you about that Hovind had built. Above it is the yellow oval room in the residence, and so they're stacked on top of each other, these three ovals, and they, of course, were built back out. <coughs> it was interesting, you'll see this little mark, this little banker's mark here, and I'll show you more examples of those in a few moments. They discovered these as they were going through the reconstruction, and these would be the marks of the stonemasons and the workers who oftentimes would be paid by measure rather than being paid by the hour or by the day. They put their mark and they would be paid by a third party's assessment of their work and whether how good it was and the quality of that work. And this mark noted uh, the, a particular workman's uh, contribution. And here's a sample of many of the banker's marks that are some historic, <coughs> some modern, many of these found in the White House. On the ground floor were these wonderful uh, groin vaulted ceilings which had supported the White House. Unfortunately, in the rebuilding, uh, they were uh, not put back in place in this exact order, so you can't see them as beautifully as they were then, but you get some hint of how they would have been on the ground floor at that time. This is the um, uh, state dining room that's being put back in order with the, the wood floor, uh, the blue room, President Roosevelt's portrait, or President Wilson's portrait, I guess. And then we go, uh, the Trumans move in and everything is fine and the house is solid and stable. And along comes uh, the administration of Jimmy Carter. And it's 1976, before he leaves office. And Rex Skelton was the chief usher of the White House at that time. And the chief usher, as you know, is like the general manager of the house. They take care of everything from the cooks to the maids to the chefs to the florists to the electricians to the plumbers uh, to the operation of the structure of the house. And he had been working with the National Park Service, which the White House grounds are actually reservation number one, an actual National Park Service uh, property, and they maintain the exterior and the grounds of the White House. It was time, as it was from time to time, it was time to repaint the White House. So Rex Scout was working with the National Park Service, and they started painting the White House, and paint wouldn't stick. Paint was peeling, not, not holding. And they discovered that it was because there was so much paint that it was just paint on top of paint on top of paint. And they went to President Carter and presented a project which ended up being a 20 year project. From Jimmy Carter in 1976 to Bill Clinton in 1996 to strip the paint, which turned out to be 40 layers from the original whitewash that was put on by the stonemasons, uh, which would keep the uh, water from seeping into the stone, the porous stone, and freezing and cracking the stone. It was a whitewash, and that's how the, the reference to it being a white house initially began. But after that, paint after paint after paint after paint layer was put on and Jimmy Carter approved and said yes this needs to be done and so a 20-year project was undertaken to strip that in sections all the way around and so you could see national uh, natural sections of the stone there's the uh, an entire section of the White House that's being uh, that you could see bare at the time if you go uh, to the White House today and you're out come out the north door, to just to your left will be this section that's kept un, 
painted so that you can see the natural stone as it exists and some of the intricacies of the carving. Uh, it's covered and fairly well protected by weather, from weather, uh, but you can see that still today when you go through. This is um, when the Carter Project was underway. They actually found some scorch marks uh, underneath all of that paint that were emblematic of the British fire or a reminder of the British fire. And of course, this was painted over. This was exterior wall, but currently in the White House and kept for everyone to see and as a reminder of that monumental moment in American history on the basement of the White House, right outside the kitchen in the curator's office is a door sill similar to that or a part of a door similar, above a door similar to that where you can see the scars of the fire and uh, I see it frequently and it's a, it's a stark reminder of that time when the house was almost completely lost uh, to history. Um, so it's a wonderful treasure of a house. It's been through uh, many iterations. Uh, it is uh, maintained today, as I said, structurally by the United States government, the Park Service, the General Services Administration. But I'll close my comments and open it to questions, but I'll bring it back to Mrs. Kennedy before I do. She did several things in addition to creating the White House Historical Association that, are, that remain her living legacy of historic preservation at the White House today. One of those was us. The other was she created the very first curator concept. There was no one on the White House staff that actually took care of these things, that would inventory and manage. And if the political staff wanted to rush in and do an event to make sure that things were minded and not broken and that they're taken care of and cared for, and that records are properly kept for all of these things. The third thing she did is she committed, she created the Committee for the Preservation of the White House. Now, in my view, this is the best kind of government group. They have no budget and they have no staff. They're simply an advisory group, and they are selected by each administration for the president and the first lady to consult if they have an idea of something that they would like to do with the White House, to have a legacy in the White House. They would consult the Committee for the Preservation of the White House. It is represented by, um, currently, Leslie Bowman from Monticello is on that group. Rusty Powell, formerly of the National Gallery of Art, now with the Commission on Fine Arts, um, the Director of the Park Service. There are about 10, uh, a representative from Wintertour is on that group. About 10 highly qualified individuals who are a sounding board of the President and the First Lady and certainly not a rubber stamp to anything they may want to do. So a couple of examples of that. When Laura Bush was in the White House and uh, wanted to undertake a project, she Really, there were a few things, but two that I, that I think are the most important. As you know, the Lincoln bedroom that we call it today was not a bedroom for President Lincoln. It was his office and where his cabinet met. But she wanted to take it back to as close to what it would have been the time of the Lincoln presidency and look. It's still a bedroom, but what would it have looked and felt like had it been his office at the time? And so she went to the Committee for the Preservation of the White House, got their advice to the council on what that would be. They made those determinations and then they came to us. We did the research as to what we could find, where we could get it, and then we funded that project to make that project possible. She'd also, she is a librarian by training, as you know, and so my favorite room at the White House is actually the library on the ground floor. 
So we did the project that redid the library with Mrs. Bush, given her interest in the library. Mrs. Obama uh, had an interesting concept, and that was uh, she wanted a space in the White House to exhibit more contemporary art. To have a work in the White House collection, the artist must be deceased, and the work of art uh, should be at least 25 years old or older, so you don't have living artists profiting from uh, some of their other works by saying they are an artist that's exhibited in the White House. Of course, the only exception to that is the presidential and first lady portraits, because those artists have to be alive to <laughs> <laughs> So the more we get into the 21st century, the great American artists of the late 20th century are becoming eligible to have their works in the White House collection. And so there's an old family dining room right off the uh, state dining room on the state floor that was rarely used for public occasions, mostly used for small breakfast and official lunches at the dinners of the president. And so it had not been redone since Mrs. Kennedy. It was very yellow, if you can remember that in your mind's eye, a very yellow room. Well, that has been transformed now to essentially a gallery. Uh, we acquired an Alma Thomas, uh, first African-American female artist in the White House collection from the 1960s Washington Color School. That work is in there. There's a Rauschenberg. There are two small Albers, an Albers rug, and with federal furniture still in the, in the room. So it still has a nod to the traditions of the White House, but it allows the opportunity to share these more contemporary works and acquisitions through the White House collection. And every administration takes on a legacy project like that. We also fund the White House China when a new administration or an administration will determined that they think it's uh, important to add to the China. We would also do crystal or silver if that were necessary, but China is typically the one that's done. And uh, we fund the presidential and first lady portraits as well, things that are important to have done that would be difficult for tax dollars to undertake, either because of the cost or because of, we could do it in a more timely fashion and in some ways uh, more efficient. So that's a little bit of our mission and weaves together Mrs. Kennedy and her role in our important education mission and how we're able to teach and tell these stories of White House history going back to 1792 when George Washington selected that piece of land that we now have the White House on today and the extraordinary men and women, many of them forgotten. Uh, Jamie mentioned the upcoming uh, exhibit of the 400th anniversary and we'll be undertaking a very similar project to that starting in February we have at our offices, which are historic Decatur House on Lafayette Square, we have a real privilege of having a long-term partnership with the National Trust for Historic Preservation that we operate Decatur House as our own headquarters. So we maintain it and up, provide for the upkeep, but we also use it as our offices and event space. Well, it's a 200-year-old home built by Commodore Stephen Decatur and his wife, Susan. And, um, we have in that space the last remaining example of slave quarters where enslaved persons lived in the president's neighborhood in that period, that pre-Civil War period of American history. And so we are restoring that and interpreting that in some fashion, working with Lonnie Bunch and the American Museum of African American History, or the Museum of African American History. And there are two other parts of that story that are really important that are undertold. One is in Lafayette Park where these stonemasons labored. There was enslaved labor 
that participated in the building of the White House. In fact, you may remember in May before the Obama administration ended, Mrs. Obama was giving a commencement speech and then again that summer at the Democratic National Convention, she mentioned that every morning she wakes up in a house that was built by slaves. And on both occasions, our website crashed because people wanted to know that information. What is this all about? We've heard that story. And so we're going to work to tell the story of the enslaved persons as best we can and to the degree we know who they were, who owned them, how they were involved and engaged, and we think that's an important story to tell. The third piece of that story is those who were enslaved to our early presidents who actually lived and worked in the White House. So that's uh, in a part, as a part of our education mission and undertaking that we'll be doing over the next uh, two years. But we have a real privilege to, on behalf of you, the American people, uh, to undertake this work because the White House does not belong to President and Mrs. Trump. It does not did not belong to President and Mrs. Obama, or President and Mrs. Bush, or President and Mrs. Garfield. The White House belongs to you, belongs to the American people, and it's a treasure that you should be proud of. If you have the opportunity to visit, if you haven't in a long time, you can obtain tickets through your member of Congress, and it's really a special and important place to walk through and realize all of the history that's taken place over the course of time through that wonderful White House. And it's, my, it's been my uh, real treat for me to be with you here today. I have a colleague that's going to be here in December uh, to speak with you on his new book on the death of George Washington and the mourning of this iconic leader in our country. Dr. Matthew Costello will be with you in December. And that, uh, he's really a terrific historian, so I know you'll look forward to seeing him. But with that, I'll conclude my remarks, and thank you very much. It was a real privilege to be here. We do have, the, the book is available if you'd like the book. It's Bill Sills' book, but I do have a foreword, and it's really a wonderful read. I, I've read it several times. It's really a treasure, and it's great illustrations as well. Many of the illustrations from this presentation are from this book. Do you have any information on the operative uh, St Scottish stonemasons actually being uh, members of the Masonic fraternity? Yes, they were, um, they all came from Masonic Lodge number eight in Edinburgh which over time, the Grand Lodge in Edinburgh had morphed a little bit to have members who were not actual certified stone masons. But Lodge Number 8 in Edinburgh uh, is the lodge where all seven of the stone masons came from. You can still go there, and in their public room, they'd be happy to show you the logbook where they signed out to come. Now, it was against the law for them to come to the United States. Uh, Britain was at war with revolutionary France, the building boom in Newtown in Edinburgh had been suspended so that those craftsmen could be available to help the war effort. And yet people were suffering financially because all of these fronts had begun to be built on all of these homes and buildings and they weren't being finished and so they weren't getting income from them. So stonemasons, these seven, risked uh, breaking the law to come to our country to work on uh, this building. And you can go and see where they logged out, and it says, gone to America, or we'll be back soon, or something like that. And uh, we were really privileged, in addition to dedicating the plaque that I showed you, and we had stonemasons and masons, members of that particular lodge, came to the dedication of that plaque. But the government of Scotland also put on an exhibit there about the stonemasons. It ran for about six months last year, uh, and the work of the masons on building.
so they were actual Masons and members of that lodge. What amazes me is the fact that the tools that they used could make a leaf curved and the inside of the, the bottom of the leaf is also hollow. What in the world kind of tools were used other than the chisel? Well, they were our iron or metal tools that were very rudimentary. Uh, the stonemasons that came from Scotland to do the, the rows that we brought here had power tools and all kinds of air blowers and uh, he brought with him a sample of the tools that they would have used that looked like raw iron chisels. And it is incredible that they would have been able to have the precision to do that very delicate work by hand. Particularly, recall I talked about the span of 14 feet that they put up and carved in place. Now, had something broken off while they were carving, I don't know what they would have done. But it was, uh, it was a marvel that they were able to do it with such rudimentary Tools. There was a fascinating presentation. I'd love to know you mentioned the organization as nonprofit. Mm -hmm. uh, you spend a lot of money. What are your sources of income to offset them? Well, thank you for that. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> we love um, questions like that. Uh, and I, don't, I promise I don't know him. I didn't ask him to do this. <laughs> well, early on, uh, Mrs. Kennedy, as I mentioned, started selling the books. So that was a very early source of income, the books. Uh, we have had some private philanthropy over the years. Uh, but in 1981, when Mrs. Reagan was the first lady, someone went into her office and had the idea that if they had come into my office at the time, I probably would have thought, fine, go do that. And that was the idea to do a White House Christmas ornament every year. So starting in 1981, we started a White House Christmas ornament that's American-made to this day. And Mrs. Reagan also did a wonderful thing that's benefited us. She decided that we would feature a different president every year sequentially. So we don't have to make a political decision of which president we honor this year. That's determined for us. So this year, it happens to be Eisenhower. And President Eisenhower was the first American president to use a helicopter for presidential travel. So this year's ornament, I actually happen to have one right here, is uh, the presidential helicopter, which very similar to the one today, but it was, he used Army and Marine Corps. He did not want to show preference of one branch of the service over the other. And it comes in a little box like this, and there it is. And it has a little landing pad on the south lawn of the White House. And to be a teaching tool, everything that we do comes with a little history of each of these ornaments every year comes with a little uh, history booklet that tells the story of not just that ornament, but of that presidency and that time in American history. So since 1981, these have been the bread and butter of our work. In 2015, we launched a more traditional uh, philanthropy program. We had never had a sustained membership program, believe it or not, until 2015, ever. So we started that. We now have about 16,000 members, which is a great thing for us. We have a wonderful uh, website of resources. We do. We have a team of historians and scholars that are available to uh, authors, journalists, professors, students, White House correspondents. If there's something happening in the White House, like a state dinner or a historic visit or like this visit to the UK, we get a lot of calls from journalists wanting to know when was the last time this happened or the last time that happened or what was served when this was done or 
who entertained at that particular function. So you'll frequently see us cited as the source of that type of information. But the funding has um, sort of the blessing and the curse of this ornament, as I call it. It's been a wonderful mainstay for us, and it is a teaching tool, and it is American-made, which we're very proud of, but we can't just depend on this because this is sort of fixed, uh, pretty leveled off income stream. Uh, so we are, uh, we do have private philanthropy that sponsors our more programmatic activity now, our education programs and teacher institutes and things like that. Thank you. Thank you for asking. And I, and I will note before we take our last question, and in fact it was that uh, success of ornament that inspired our new Virginia history ornament, which was designed and made by the same wonderful American manufacturer that the White House Historical Association. So yeah, now you can buy both next year. Okay, right. we'll take our last question. Okay. All right. Thank you for this presentation. I'm curious, during the Truman renovation, you had to take massive amounts of architectural detail and furnishings out of the house. Where was all that stored? Well, it was stored in the, in suburban Washington, D.C. In fact, as you can imagine, the White House collection today is much larger than can be accommodated at any one time in the White House. The collections of art, the furniture, the decorative arts. So there are facilities outside of Washington proper in the suburbs where these things are managed and guarded protected. And so early on, during the Truman administration, it was more of a warehouse kind of a, uh, put these things there until we can sort them out. Now, when they came back into the White House, and this is an interesting thing that rolls up to Mrs. Kennedy, typically, presidents like, I mentioned James Monroe had brought in the French influence in furniture, and they sometimes had to contribute their own resources to make that possible that the government wouldn't pay. And so as things were gotten rid of over time, there wasn't a great supply of these antiques and historical resources because they had not been fully appreciated. And because when they moved back in the White House, Truman was not a personally wealthy man. Eisenhower, who followed him, was not a personally wealthy man. By the time Mrs. Kennedy saw the house with Mamie Eisenhower for the very first time after the election in 1960, when she was walking through the house, the entire house was literally furnished. This, it sounds like I'm making this up. Literally furnished with New York department store reproduction furniture. And Mrs. Kennedy said no. This <laughs> that this should be represent the very best of American artisans and craftsmen, furniture makers and the like. And it, we should restore as much as possible the um, the things that used to be in the White House. And so she even foraged around in the attic and in the basement. She found what we now know very popularly as the Resolute Desk that's in the Oval Office. Was found, she found covered over with blankets and it had radio equipment on top of it. And so things were just kind of cast off as not important or old. Something like we would maybe throw in our attic or throw in our basement. Uh, and uh, she went to the people that she trusted. Um, Mr. DuPont at Winter Tour was a trusted friend of hers, and he gave her counsel. She also sought uh, advice from her friends in France, uh, and uh, really, uh, and in fact, I think the inspiration for creating us was to do what museums do, and that is to create a friends group or a private group to help fund some of the work of the museum. And so that was the concept in uh, creating us. But um, that's sort of the story of, of that. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.